The interview. The purpose of a suspect interview is, first and foremost, to establish the maximal amount of factual information concerning an alleged historical criminal incident. A secondary goal is to bolster your confidence in the guilt or innocence of the suspect. I recommend structuring your interview in a way that is easy to remember and easy to replicate. As you increase in skill and confidence, you will learn to riff on the structure to develop your own style. When you miss information, it will almost always be in the interview. I see detectives all the time that are so focused on getting to the interrogation that they neglect to maximize the value of their interview. Not every interview with the suspect will result in a confession, but almost every interview with the suspect will make your case stronger if you do it right. I urge you to shift your mindset from believing that a confession is the ultimate goal to believing that an interview that makes your case stronger is the ultimate goal. A confession is just the cherry on top. Better interviews lead to better interrogations. When you have discovered the maximal amount of factual information that the suspect is willing to divulge about the case, you'll be left with the one big secret and nothing to distract you. The suspect interview has a predictable structure that looks like this. 1. Greeting and custodial issues. 2. Rapport building. 3. Transition. 4. Fact-finding, including small wins. 5. Behavior-provoking questions. 1 through 3 should happen in order. Fact-finding and behavior-provoking questions will be mixed together. When I go into the interview room now, I take a Word document that has the case number and other pertinent facts for the case. I include my small wins, corroborating details, and behavior-provoking questions that are tailored to the interview. I do type out my behavior-provoking questions, but at everything else I try to prompt myself with a few words. If you use a Word document, learn to glance at it, take in the information, face the suspect again, and then present the information or question to the suspect. You don't want the suspect to get the sense that you're reading from a prepared statement, or worse yet, a stock list of questions. You want to be looking at the suspect when you ask them important questions. If you have a monologue for custodial issues or transition, memorize it. Practice saying it out loud while you drive in the car. It's okay to have the prompt on the page, but it's not okay to be reading from the page. Seriously. Picture a person looking at the page and reading, I'm going to ask you a series of questions, some of them I already know the answer to, but I want to see if you're going to lie to me. Now picture the same investigator looking straight at the interviewee and saying the same thing. I'm going to ask you a series of questions, some of them I already know the answer to, but I want to see if you're going to lie to me. Which detective will inspire a deceptive subject to believe they know things that they couldn't otherwise know? Use your prompts the right way. So let's unpack these steps one by one. Greeting and custodial issues. When you walk in the interview room, you have about seven seconds to make your first impression on the interviewee. Don't waste that time. Walk in the room with a smile, establish eye contact right away, and shake their hand. In the era of COVID, the handshake can be bypassed. Say something like, hello, I'm Detective, and you are, right? Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Don't walk in looking mean. Don't walk in with coffee slopping and looking distracted. You've got one shot to establish a good first impression. Don't overlook the greeting. After greeting comes custodial issues. Suspect interviews are either custodial or non-custodial. If they are custodial, you must read them their Miranda warning. If they are non-custodial, you may read them their Miranda warning, but you do not have to. This article cannot explore all of the legal questions surrounding these two types of interviews. If you're in doubt, look up case law or consult with attorneys. I will share with you what I do and what challenges I've come across in the course of my work. I do not read a suspect the Miranda warning during non-custodial interviews. 
I think it encourages them to think about consequences when I want them thinking about the accusations. Instead, I say something like, Thank you very much for coming in today to talk with me. I think it really speaks highly of your character that you are making yourself available like this. I want you to know that you aren't under arrest. You understand that? Good. You should know that you can stop this interview at any time. If you want to leave, the door is open. You just open it and walk out to the left. If you need water, I'll get it for you. If you need a bathroom break, I'll show you the way. Do you understand all that? Good. Although obvious, it bears mentioning. If you are conducting an on-custodial interview and the suspect decides they want to leave, let them leave. If they aren't free to go, then the interview is custodial. There are endless ways to deliver the same basic non-custodial speech. Make this speech in a way that sounds natural for the way that you speak. The most important elements are that they are not under arrest, they're free to go, that they can end the interview at any time, and that their basic needs will be met and accommodated. Also, make sure you get verbal confirmation that they understand. I've only had one non-custodial interview of mine challenged. I gave the suspect my non-custodial spiel, and he acknowledged that he understood. The interview led to an interrogation, which led to a confession. An assistant district attorney told me to prepare for a suppression hearing. The defense was challenging the admissibility of the confession. Based on how I was asked to prepare, they appeared to be challenging based on custodial issues. It was a non-custodial. Language barrier issues. I conducted the interview in Spanish. Or possibly some sort of discrimination issues. The ADA asked me about questions pertaining to his immigration status. I felt confident that there wasn't any validity to any of the challenges. After hours of preparation and dozens of emails, the judge admitted the confession without requiring a hearing. For custodial interviews, you read the suspect the Miranda warning, full stop. If they invoke any of the protections in those warnings, stop the interview. Do not attempt to persuade the suspect to talk anyway. I never operate in the gray area here. If I'm not sure, I ask the suspect to clarify what their wishes are. Your credibility is more important than any interview. Do the right thing. When you're working as a detective, you are responsible for your own approach to custodial issues and also that of the officers that call you. One time, a patrol officer called me from a scene of a statutory rape of a juvenile. They had a 30-something-year-old man in a truck. A 15-year-old female called the police to say that he had forced her to perform oral sex on him while inside of the truck. I asked the officers to inquire of the man if he'd be willing to make a statement. They told me that he was willing to talk to me. I asked him to transport him to the office in a way that would make it clear that he was not in custody. They said they understood. When they showed up, I met them in the lobby of my building and let out an audible gasp. They had brought me a man that was handcuffed, naked except for underwear, and only covered by a giant yellow foam sheet that made him look like a human burrito. Prior to them showing up, I had been mulling the issues of whether or not this would be a custodial or non-custodial interview. When I saw him, there was no longer any doubt. The suspect was in custody. I gave him some spare clothes, read him his Miranda warning, and got down to business. Remember this case next time a patrol officer you don't know says, I Mirandized him. If you are ever in doubt, just read the suspect in Miranda warning. Rapport building. Use your rapport building time to ease their fears and build trust, but also be on the lookout for how they speak and act. This will establish a baseline that you will be thankful to have later on. According to dictionary.com, rapport is a relation or connection. Basically, building rapport is establishing a connection. I have a fairly simple rule for rapport building. I attempt to laugh with the interviewee at least once before getting into the main subject matter. Some detectives like to build rapport for an hour or more. I don't enjoy the sound of my own voice enough to do this. One purpose of building rapport is to help them view you as somebody with humanity. How do you build rapport? 
As I told the detective I'm training, rapport building is like making friends. I don't know how to teach you how to make friends. If you don't know, ask them about their job, family, and interests. Most people love talking about themselves. Look for connections. This can be as intimate as you both went to the same high school and as generic as you both hate traffic. Find a way to get across that you share something, no matter how small. The second thing that happens during rapport building is that, you, uh, that a baseline is established. You see how your suspect talks and acts when questions are familiar and comfortable, like, how long have you lived in this town? You will contrast this later on when you ask some questions like, if I were to run a search warrant on your phone, is there any chance I'd find child pornography on there? The transition. Once you've built rapport in whatever way you think best, transition with a statement that runs something like this, modify as you like. Now, Michael, I appreciate you coming in and to talk with me today. I'm going to ask you some questions, not because I want to know the answer, but because I already know the answer and I want to see if you're going to tell the truth. Do you promise to tell me the truth today? Once you have this conversation, you need to tell the person exactly why they're in the room with you. This isn't necessarily a legal requirement, it is a practical requirement. If you do not identify the exact reason for the interview, you might spend hours talking about different issues without knowing about it. Let's look at a scenario where this could affect the outcome. A man has been accused by his stepdaughter of rape. Victim outcries that the rape happened five years ago. During the course of the investigation, CPS and police find out that the man has been seen by family members dancing with the stepdaughter at family gatherings. While dancing, the man appears to move his hands around on her body in inappropriate ways. CPS makes it to the family first. They don't want to undermine the law enforcement investigation, so they use really vague terms like inappropriate touching to describe what they are investigating. Later, the detective asks the man to come in for a statement by saying, we're looking into some allegations your stepdaughter has made. Despite a three-month investigation, by the time the man sits in the interview room, he has no idea that he has been accused of rape. If you brought this man in, covered custodial issues, built rapport, did a transition, and then went into looking for your small wins, you might well talk for hours with him believing you were talking about being handsy and you believing that you were talking about rape. Then, maybe hours later, you might have this conversation. Is it true what your stepdaughter has accused you of? Yeah, it's true. Good, I appreciate your honesty. When your penis went inside of her, was it because, what? I never put my penis inside of her. The man might be lying, or he might be telling the truth. Either way, you'll have to redo your entire interview, because all of the common ground you assumed you shared with him is no longer there. This is not only time-consuming, but also a terrible psychological blow to the interviewer. This scenario happens more often than you would think. If you can get the suspect to the interview room without being specific as to the allegations, that's fine. Once the suspect is in the interview room, though, you must identify the purpose of the investigation. I recommend doing it after the transition from rapport building to interview. After rapport building, a transition might look like this. I really appreciate you telling me more about yourself. I do need to ask you some different kinds of questions, though. First, I want to address some general housekeeping issues. While we are talking here, I'm going to ask you some questions I don't know the answer to. I'm not asking them because I want to know the answers. I'm asking them because I want to see if you'll tell me the truth. Do you promise to tell me the truth today? Yeah. Good, I appreciate that. Now, what is your understanding of the purpose of this interview today? My stepdaughter is saying some things about me. We've always been close. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I want to make sure that we both understand the exact reason for this interview. We're here because Angela, your stepdaughter, has accused you of putting your penis inside of her vagina. I want to talk with you about that. I know that this is difficult for you to talk about, 
It sounds like there has been a certain amount of trust between you two that has been broken. That's hard, and I know it. When Angela says that you put your penis in her vagina, is she lying? Let's point out a few things. First, there are some major elements that you should try to use in most interviews. You want to convey to the interviewee that you know the truth and will therefore know when they are lying. However you want to word that thought, I recommend that you use it in every interview. It doesn't cost you anything, and it is sure to increase uncertainty in those that came with the intention of lying. I got a confession from a guy last week, and I'm convinced that it was largely because I asked him to promise to tell me the truth. I cannot overstate the value of these lines. You want to remain calm and confident. If the interviewee sees that you are judging them or doesn't feel safe with you, they aren't going to confide in you. Do not let the heinousness of the crime affect your demeanor. Ask them why they are at the interview. I found that innocent people tend to use harsh language. My stepdaughter says I raped her. And guilty people tend to use soft language. My stepdaughter says I did something? This isn't definitive. It's just a clue. When you identify why they are at the interview, be clear but avoid harsh language. You identify clearly the purpose of the interview when you say that his stepdaughter has accused him of putting his penis in her vagina. Saying, your stepdaughter has accused you of rape is going to bring up defenses and make them think of consequences. After you identify the issue using clear but soft language, keep talking. I've found that guilty suspects allow me to keep talking after I've told them that they've been accused of a serious crime. Sometimes they will even nod their heads. Innocent suspects want to jump in and take over the conversation. This doesn't mean that if they let you talk, they are guilty, and if they cut you off, they are innocent. It is a clue. This moment is an inflection point in every interview. When you get to this moment, keep your eyes and ears open. Ask yourself if the suspect's actions make sense in the context of this moment. Finally, once you've identified the purpose of the interview and assessed the response, ask them how it is that they have become a suspect. If they have been accused, ask them if the person accusing them is a liar. If they have been otherwise identified, ask them how they explain this fact. This isn't a script. There's not one magical way to say these things. Many variations are possible. For example, I've had some recent success with suggesting a theme during the transition. The case involved a 24-year-old male accused of forcibly raping his 13-year-old cousin. In my state, it is considered aggravated sexual assault of a child to have sex with a child under the age of 14. That looked like this. Thanks for sharing so much about yourself. The reason we are here today is because Maria said you raped her. That's a really harsh way to say had sex together. You know, I've lost sleep over this case because I worry that this might not accurately represent what happened. I know that typically these sorts of things happen when two people have a relationship and one of them regrets it. Sometimes the person who regrets it is the one who started the whole thing. I want you to know that you can trust me with the truth. I'm going to ask some questions today that I already know the answers to. The reason I do that is because I want to see if you're going to tell me the truth or not. Do you promise to tell me the truth? This is an, an example of riffing on the formula. It still identifies the reason for the interview and lets the suspect know that you know more than they think. It adds in an early thematic presentation of blaming the victim. It uses harsh language but does so purposefully in order to establish a sort of alternative question. You didn't rape her, you had technically illegal relationship sex with her. I present this here to make clear that there is not just one right way to do this. In music, you don't riff until you can play chords. The same principle holds true here. If you're just getting started, follow the formula I outline above. You've got to crawl before you run. If you have some interviews under your belt, keep yourself open to some improvisation. One of the most important things in interviewing is staying true to your own voice. Say the tough things, but say it how you would say it. After this transition from rapport building to interview, you're ready to get the suspect's statement. 
This will be the subject of the next section. Fact-finding. Fact-finding is a topic I could say nothing about or devote books to and still feel like I didn't do it justice. A detective should be curious. If something doesn't make sense, follow up on it until either it does make sense or it is clear that the interviewee doesn't want it to make sense for you. I will write more on this later. For now, I want to point out three fairly common fact-finding patterns. The known date and time, the unknown date and time, and the prolific offender. These three patterns require different techniques. When the crime you're investigating occurred at a known date and time, for example, last Saturday at 7 p.m., you will be focusing on the suspect's movements, actions, and whereabouts around that time. You might say, please tell me everything you did last Saturday. When they tell you their story, you will go back and clarify until you know everything about their day that they are willing to tell you. Many deceptive subjects have things they are willing to tell you, but they will not volunteer. Watch out for lying by omission. Please tell me everything you did last Saturday. Last Saturday. I don't know. I was with my girlfriend all day. We hardly left the house. Did you leave the house last Saturday? Yeah, come to think of it, we picked up some fast food for lunch. I could continue to develop this, but that's far enough to make a few points. 1. People can and do commit crimes even with their girlfriends present. 2. Hardly left the house doesn't mean they never left the house. 3. Which house were they at? 4. When he tells you that he left the house for lunch, that doesn't mean he never left the house any other times, but he might want you to think so. Innocent suspects might leave things out because they don't think they're important. Deceptive suspects leave things out because they don't want to get caught. When you extract more of the story than they initially gave you, ask yourself which of these two types you are talking to. When you are dealing with a crime that happened at an unknown date and time, your fact-finding portion of the interview will be different. This comes up on a daily basis in the investigation of child sex abuse. Most outcries are very delayed. With these types of crimes, know your case facts and work to corroborate any detail the victim provides. Explore general aspects of their character and the victim's character. Use lots of words like forensic interview, experts, and non-acute medical exams. Remember, you may feel like you have nothing, but the guilty sub uh, subjects know they did it, and that is a powerful force operating in your favor. Maybe it happened while mom was away on a trip. Maybe the victim recalls the TV show they were watching or the color of the sheets or the design on their underwear. If you have any details like these, work to confirm them. Ask the suspect if he has ever been in the situation that the victim described. Find out about his upbringing. Maybe he was abused as a child. Ask about the victim's character. Is she a liar? What has she lied about? A third type of fact-finding variant is the prolific offender. This is a guy that has committed so many crimes that it it is difficult to stay focused on any one of them. These interviews feel like they should be easy because there is so much criminality that it seems something has to go your way. Think about a pedophile that has molested dozens of children, or possibly one that has molested one child dozens of times. When you encounter this type of offender, stick with your case facts. If you are dealing with one offender that has molested dozens of children, ask yourself which case you are investigating. Don't get distracted by unknown victims. Usually, you will only have one or two children that have made outcries and generated reports. Pick the first child and interview the suspect about everything that has to do with that child. Then move to the next child and do the same. If you jump back and forth between the victims, you'll miss things. Follow the same pattern in the interrogation. Do one crime or victim and then the next. You rarely, if ever, get all of the truth from a deceptive suspect in an interview, but you have succeeded when you have extracted all of their story that they are willing to share. Don't leave meat on the bone when you interview. 
it's a secret that they would have told you had you asked about it, or at least asked about it in the right way, then you've missed out when you don't get it. If it's a secret that they came prepared to deny to the bitter end, then that's what interrogation was made to reveal. Behavior-provoking questions. Behavior-provoking questions are an important part of the interview. I prepare about five for every interview. These questions should be mixed into the fact-finding questions discussed in the previous section. It's hard to define a BPQ. I think you just have to see them to know them. Here are a few that I use. When victim says that you, alleged action, is she lying? My personal favorite. Have you ever masturbated to thoughts of victim? Have you done anything with victim that you are ashamed of? What do you think should happen to somebody that has done this alleged action? When you ask a BPQ, you need to be looking straight at the suspect with all of your senses engaged. You will be comparing their reaction to the baseline that you established during rapport building. Did they suddenly cross their legs? Did they go up or down an octave in their response? Did they dodge the question? One of the most common responses I get to the is she lying question is, I think so. This is not a good answer. BPQ should be a part of your interview arsenal. I can't think of a BPQ that has prompted a confession for me, but I can think of countless times when I was reassured that the suspect was being deceptive as a result of them. If you aren't sure how to formulate them for the crime you're investigating, email me and I'll try to help. If you have decided to interrogate the suspect, take a break for five minutes and then come back in for the interrogation. If you've decided that you don't feel sufficiently confident about the suspect's guilt, end the interview and show them out, assuming it is not custodial. So this is the overview of a good interview. I'll be unpacking lots of these in later posts, but this will get you started. Remember, the purpose of an interview is to uncover the maximal amount of factual information concerning an alleged historical criminal incident. Do not rush the interview to get to the interrogation. We'll talk more soon.